Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello. I am Katie Keller, Editorial Communications Manager with ClearanceJobs.com, and thank you so much for joining in for this episode of Cleared Cast. Today, I'm joined by Enrique, aka Rick Prado, who is a former CIA clandestine services officer. Rick is a paramilitary counterterrorism and special operations specialist and a 24-year veteran of the CIA, where he served as an operations officer in six overseas posts. He was deputy chief of station and plank owner of the original bin Laden task force, chief of station in a hostile Muslim country, chief of operations in the CIA's counterterrorist center during the September 11th attacks, where Mr. Prado helped coordinate CIA and CTC's special operations activities, as well as with elite U.S. military representatives from Delta Forces and SEAL Team 6, then detailed to CTC CIA. So he retired as a senior intel service, CIS-2 major general equivalent at CIA. And you also spent your first 10 years at the agency as a paramilitary officer for the CIA Special Operations Force, including 36 months in Central America's jungles as the first CIA officer living in the anti-Sandinista Contra camp. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. I know that Hollywood certainly loves to embellish the three-letter agencies of our government, and I'm actually currently watching a TV show based in the time of the Contra camp. So I I was really excited for the conversation with you this morning. But you recently released a memoir to lift the veil of secrecy and offer a glimpse into the shadow wars that America has fought since the Vietnam era. So I I really thank you so much, Rick, for joining me today for this episode of ClearCast. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive into your journey, I really I want to give our audience the full scope of your journey because it really is an amazing story. But what are before we get started, some of the biggest misconceptions that you've seen as folks sort of embark on the clandestine journey within the agency or other agencies? Well, I think it begins with the uh, the way that Hollywood portrays the CIA never favorably. Um, and I think that a lot of people probably shy away from it. Um you know, we are always described as malign and misunderstood, and our officers are always uh, described as colli- um, immoral, corrupt, tre- treasonous, maniacal assassins, and nothing could be further from the truth. So unless the individual knows somebody, they really go, when I went into the agency, I really did not know what my parameters were or what I was going to be doing. Well, here to bust those myths. So I, again, thank you so much for for joining. You still actually live through this these skills that you've learned at the agency through training local SWAT teams. But let's sort of take it back to the beginning. Your story begins in Cuba when Fidel Castro came to power and seized uh, a coffee roasting business. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I I, um, I was uh, in my probably seventh or eighth uh, birthday the year when uh, when Castro was just about to take power. And the first incident that started forging my medal, for lack of a better term, was a huge firefight right in front of my house as the rebels had come down on a harassment attack 
to uh, to the town that I lived in at the time. Saw gunfire two feet in front of me, literally, and of course people that were wounded and everything else. But what really what really sets in my mind is the after effect of Castro taking over. How quickly the iron fist. Uh, became immediately uh, um, companies were confiscated for the government, including my dad's. He had a small coffee roasting company. We were middle class, so no pretensions there. I was uh, put on a uniform. Every kid in school had to wear this militaristic uniform, color coded, for God knows what reason, uh, and and participate in things like literacy programs. Well, I was nine years old when Castro took over. How does a nine year old? And I did it go to, to some uh, poor peasant's house and try to re- teach them how to read and write when you're a nine-year-old. Right. Uh, so, but then it's, it started, obviously, like everything with, with communism, it gets worse and worse. We're seeing this in, in Ukraine. The persecutions, the uh, the arrests, and the actual, you know, uh, killing of the opposition. I, I remember when we first moved out to Havana, um, after my dad had decided that we were going to try to leave, as we're entering the main avenue, the Avenida del Prado, there were there were guys hanging from trees and telephone poles with signs that said counter-revolutionary. Wow. And 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 of course my mom is in the front seat jumping to the back trying to cover my eyes. Sure. But uh, I saw it all. And so even even at that tender age of, of you know nine, 10 years old, I could see that this was a monster um, that that was going to swallow us all up. And my dad um, decided that uh, he would take his only child, put him on an airplane to a country he has never been to or may never be able to follow just for freedom. And you know, that is probably the biggest lesson in my whole life because for a mom and a dad to have that courage, not for financial gain on the contrary, but strictly for freedom, I think that that also lit a fire uh, in, in my psyche for very early on. I can't even imagine. I feel like they should certainly make a a movie. We talk about Hollywood embellishing things, but your story, it doesn't really stop there. So let's take it to your start, the start of your career in the CIA and how you found your mission there. So walk us through that. Well, I I think there's like three steps uh, before that. First, uh, you know, when I did come to the United States, I'd ended up in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. And that was another interesting experience. From there, my parents were able to come out eight months later. I started attending school. I had learned English in at the orphanage because that's all they would do. It was teach you English and play baseball and go to rodeos. I, I, my English was actually survival English, but I could help my mom and dad. Then, uh, you know, through my high school years, um, I started growing a conscience about what an incredible opportunity I have had at the expense of my parents and because of communism. So right after high school, I was uh, in my first semester in college when I decided to um, to join an elite military unit called Pararescue. It's the uh, Air Force's you know, Special Operations Forces, one of two. And uh, with, with the hope of going to Vietnam, that was my goal. Go to Vietnam, make a difference, try to pay back the U.S. for taking me and my parents in. Made it through uh, Pararescue. I thought I was a pretty tough kid before I went there. It was um, quite a reality check. We we suffer the same attrition that our Green Beret brethren and, and SEAL Team brethren, which is 80% of those who try don't make it. So I think, again, that was another growth experience for me. But after all that training, 
I did not get to go to Vietnam because by the time I got my beret was late 72, early 73. And uh, I was just training for training's sake. I was uh, not doing, I wasn't making a difference. I did not feel like I was making a difference. So I wrote to the agency in 1974. Of course, those were the attrition years. So they came back with thanks, but no thanks. I tried again in 1980, I believe it was, or late 79. And this time they brought me on board on contract to do part-time work because pararescue, I was already an EMT2 certified guy and I was writing rescue in, in Miami Metro. Dade, this, you know, I would go 30 days at a time, two weeks at a time, go up to wherever they asked me to go to training sites to provide combat medic kind of training and backup to, uh, to the special activities division which is the paramilitary arm of, of the CIA. That was how it backdoored it into the agency. Sure. So backdoored it. I've, I've heard that from a few folks who joined the agency in the early 80s. They, they joined as in sort of a finance capacity and then moved on to, to being an officer. So it sounds like a similar case for yours. Yeah, I think what precipitated mine was that uh, they got to know me. Uh, I made a good impression. And then in 1981, when Reagan took over uh, and declared that we had to do something about the growing cancer of communism in Central America, uh, as you know, the Cuba was already taken. Uh, Nicaragua was uh, had uh, been established as a communist regime by the Sandinistas. They were exporting that to Salvador. So, but they at the time, because of the attrition, the agency did not have a guy with paramilitary background that had native. Spanish speaking and Hispanic appearance. And that's when they tracked me down and, and they called me up uh, on, on a Thursday, told me it was long-term work, that it was uh, career oriented. And the following Monday I was at headquarters and two weeks later I was in Honduras. Wow. So when you did get that phone call, did you really get a sense of what you were getting yourself into or how did that thought process go for you? Well, you know, again, and I think my military background had a lot to do with, my, you know, my my perceived reality. I knew that I was going to be dealing more on the paramilitary side, at least at the beginning. Um, but I didn't. They didn't go into details when when they called me. Uh, they I, all I asked them was, is this part time or full time? And they said, no, this would be for full time. You know, starting a career. And so I said yes. I mean, what what's there to say no to CIA operations? That's so funny. That was your main question. Is it going to full time or am I still going to be a part time contractor almost? That's all I cared about. <laughs> That's all you cared about. What sort of stories are you able to disclose or successes throughout those operations? Maybe some lessons learned. Yeah, I mean, the, the book covers the gamut of uh, first paramilitary, uh, second Cold War and, and uh, subsequently the, the counterterrorism. And there's plenty of examples there. In, in the Nicaragua um, uh, adventure, for lack of a better word, I was there for a little over three years. And uh, for the first 14 months of that program, I was the only CIA officer allowed in the Contra camps because the American hand was still being hidden. So I was there as a Honduran captain and subsequently major uh, from their intelligence side helping the Contras. So I spent those three years, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, sleeping in a jungle hammock in in, uh, in the border with Nicaragua, mm -hmm. uncontested borders. And um, there were plenty of surprises. There was plenty of um, shooting back and forth. We were attacked several times. We fought back several times. 
but there was a couple of operations that we did that were really, really special. And, and the one that I would highlight and is greatly detailed in the book is our, our attack on uh, Puerto Cabezas. Puerto Cabezas in Nicaragua is the northeast part of the country. And it is it was at the time the belly button for all resupply from uh, from Cuba, you know, from, from Russia via Cuba. When we had been doing, this is about, I think I've been there for a little over a year uh, doing what I was doing. And our headquarters came down with a uh, uh, an order saying, hey, we need to come up with something more impactful than the successful uh, raids and ambushes that we're conducting against the Sandinistas. We need to convince the population that this is a serious movement. We need to do more than just harassment and, and, and guerrilla warfare. So I proposed a, I'm a, I'm a military diver, plus I was a, a, a diver uh, even before, uh, even in high school and college. So I proposed a, uh, a operation where we would blow up the Puerto Cabezas Pier and thus negate the Sandinistas, albeit temporarily, because things can be rebuilt. But at the same time, it would be a hell of a jolt. They would know that this was more than a ragtag bunch of rebels um, trying to gain territory. The, uh, the mission was um, planned extremely well and executed extremely well and with, with all the luck and blessings. Um, we departed from Honduras in a small panga boat, which is a hollowed out canoe with my guys, my four Mosquito divers. Mosquitoes are the Native American of the Nicaragua East Coast, heavily mixed with black slaves that, that washed ashore throughout the years. They are Mosquito Sumo and Rama are the three tribes there. And they're they're considered Native Americans. They're they're um, recognized by by our own Native Americans. So while while I was training with them, and they became some of my favorite guys because they they were natural hunters, natural trackers, natural fighters. I ran across a couple of them that noticed that I had my scuba uh, a sign in my a military scuba sign on my hat, and they told me they said, "Oh well, we we're also divers. They were lobster divers." So those are the guys that I selected, uh, six of them, to uh, two washed out and uh, put them through the paces for becoming military divers and be able to do compass swims, uh, get get, on the, get the under, understanding above and beyond just bobbing for lobster. Those uh, four Mosquito uh, Indians uh, on the panga boat, we made it over to the PT boat that was waiting for us outside Puerto Limpira and, and again in northeast uh, Honduras. And it was a moonless night. We picked it for that reason. We were in Nicaraguan waters after dark. The PT boat uh, got about three miles offshore, just slightly over three miles offshore, where you could actually see some of the pier's uh, lights in, in the distance. Got in the water with my guys. We uh, the, the device the uh, it was, the device was an eighty pound of explosive device that was uh, shaped in a way that you could swim it. In other words, it would tail you without floating to the top or dragging you to the bottom. It was uh, negative buoyancy, so you could actually swim this thing. We were, uh, sent my guys in. They put the device under the, the bridge. It was done after midnight uh, for two reasons. One, obviously, stealth. But most importantly, we did, we did not want to have any collateral damage. We did not intend to kill people with this attack. It was strictly to negate them the re resupply capability. Guys got back on the uh, to the boat. We went back. We were in in uh, back in Honduran waters at break of light, and uh, two days later, for the first time in my life, I got to see satellite overhead of our work, and 
it was very, very rewarding to see that little kid from Cuba that couldn't do anything about his first country was now in these camps helping these freedom fighters get back at, uh, at communism. And we had just cut off one giant tentacle of this octopus. So it was very rewarding. Very interesting the way that in that situation or in that operation, you, you know, relied on the natives. This may be a really naive question coming from a white woman in America, but were you scared throughout all these operations? What, how were you feeling day to day? You know, I, I get that asked a lot, um, including from my wife. You know, I think that we are all wired for a particular path that God wants us to be on. I think that my childhood in Cuba during the revolution, seeing the atrocities, seeing the abuse, hard life in the United States to begin with, because we were definitely sub-poverty uh, for, for several years. Uh, my mom worked in a sweatshop. My dad worked two jobs as, as long as I knew him. So I think that throughout I, I was forged. The, the, the orphanage was, there was a lot of fighting there. There was a lot of stand your own ground. So it kind of steals yourself, even though you're in your, you know, you're you're a preteen. But you know, the real answer, the real answer is you got to believe deep in your heart that what you're doing is the right thing, that you are there making a difference for your God and your country. And I never had any doubt about that in my whole career. Wow. And these moments and just hearing your story beforehand really built you for what was coming next. So before, I mean, you have a ton of missions under your belt, even into the 2000s, but I did want to ask when you first got into the agency and you first went full-time, were there any key moments or turning points? You spoke about that mission blowing up the pier, but any turning points in your career that if they had not happened, you wouldn't really have ended up where you were on all of those other successful missions you were a part of? You know, I, I have never planned my career. I wanted to go in there and make a difference. And, and I always followed my heart. Uh, for the three years that I was living in that jungle hammock, I never once woke up in the morning and said, oh, poop, what am I doing here? On mm -hmm. the contrary, it was such a rewarding time because every single one of those peasants that I talked to had a story about why they were there to fight. And it wasn't Marxist and Leninism. It, it was definitely freedom. They closed down my church. They beat my priest. They raped my daughter. And the litany goes on. So it was very rewarding for me to be helping individuals that had that pure pureness of thought. After those three years there, I did a good enough job that the agency uh, wanted to sponsor me and uh, go to spy school. So I finished my college. Uh, I had a year to go. And I went into... Uh, espionage, um, the, the, the softer side of, uh, of, but still, I was still home-based as a paramilitary officer, but I was also now an operations officer, a case officer. So I could, could and was expected to recruit, run operations and do covert action while collecting intelligence. So um, I did well in, at, at, the, uh, at the farm, at the infamous farm. Um, and I was going to El Salvador and this was the first of many incidents where my career was changed from the original plans. Now I was supposed to go to El Salvador and help with the counterinsurgency program there. They, uh, the chief of station in Costa Rica, who was running the political and military southern front of the, of the Contra program, asked for me by name that he wanted me to be his paramilitary officer down there. 
So here I go from you know taking my my family, my wife. We were we were married, but not. Uh, I mean, we, our kid was just a baby. I mean, it was a few years old. So we were going to El Salvador, and at the, at my household goods were already in country when I got asked asked not told if I would take the the Southern Front. I saluted, and, and of course, it was great for me because I worked for one of the best guys I ever did, Joe Fernandez, an exceptional case officer and an exceptional chief of station whom I emulated in, in my career many, many times. So from there, now it was you know very, very stark contrast from being up in the north where I was in you know jungle pants and hat and guns and all this other stuff. Here I am in coat and tie working out of the embassy as a third secretary and still carrying out my meetings with, with the Contras, uh, also not enjoying the protection of the Hondurans, which were extremely good allies during this whole effort. The Costa Ricans were the opposite. They were afraid of, uh, of the Sandinistas retaliating against them because if, if they helped the, the Contras at all. So, you know, the, uh, that, that led to, um, to some successful operations down there also. But it also led to Iran-Contra affair. While I was down there, a guy named Hassenfuss, who was a former Marine that was working as a uh, loadmaster in, in the planes that were resupplying the Contras, his plane crashed into Nicaragua. He was a survivor. I think he jumped out of the parachute. I don't recall. But anyway, he, uh, he just stayed there and he was captured and he had all kinds of compromising stuff in his pockets, phone numbers, photographs, you name it and IDs given by the Salvadorian, all kinds of stuff. And that began uh, the, uh, the temporary closure of the program as the Iran, and then one thing led to the other to the Iran-Contra. You know, you figure as a GS-12, I'm in front of the grand jury, not as a, not as a subject of the investigation, but as a witness, trying to explain from my 10-foot you know, altitude uh, what was going on in the country. And... Needless to say, the prosecution hated me and the, the defense loved me because I told the facts. I told only what I was able to see. I wasn't into the political realm. I had no visibility into that. So uh, after, after those two years in Costa Rica, I went uh, to my first counterterrorist mission in 1988. I was in Costa Rica from 86 to 88. And, and again, it's not something that I volunteer for or, or that I asked for. One of my bosses said to me, he says, we are trying to get our paramilitary officers to places where they can really make a difference and grow. And you have the native Spanish and you're, you, I know that you've been interested in counterterrorism. There's this job in this, in this uh, South America country, which I was not allowed to mention, uh, but it, it was suffering from two major insurgencies, one communist and the other one Maoist. And both with, uh, you know, uh, roots into the drug trafficking uh, trade uh, to finance themselves. So here's here's yet another job that I did not put in for. I was asked to do, and it was my first counterterrorism, and I had a great time. I recruited a terrorist while I was there. Uh, we took down several uh, terrorist cells, including a hit team that was targeting us. Uh, that's all detailed in Black Ops. So. Again, never planning my career. Uh, from there, a uh, similar thing happened. That I got a phone call from uh, my, uh, my uh, Special Activities Division boss and said, hey, we have an opening in the Philippines. It's counterinsurgency. You've done a lot of insurgency and counterterrorism. Uh, and this is a good job. It's a, a deputy uh, on, on a branch. 
uh, liaison branch. And, and thus I went into the Philippines. And in the Philippines, we were helping the Filipinos, the army, the constabulary and the Navy on countering the massive, you know, uh, success that the, the bad guys had had. I mean, I got there a little over six months after Nick Rowe, legendary Colonel Nick Rowe was assassinated in the streets of Manila by the MPA, not New People's Army. Uh, so it, it was another place that was, you know, fraught with danger. And uh, we were in armored vehicles. We carried submachine guns. We carried guns, body armor, kind of like in, in, the, in, the, in the place where before, just a, a different kind of situation. Um, there was one incident there that is detailed also in Black Ops that uh, where we were targeted for assassination by a group called the Sparrows. The Sparrows were the hit teams for the uh, New People's Army. And these guys were masterful. They carry a 45 stuck in their pants. They, underneath just the belt line, they would hold it with a, with a left hand and they would pop that gun up and shoot you and reholster and walk off. And most people would never even knew where the shot came from. Hmm. There is actually a very good YouTube video. If you put um, New People's Army Philippines Sparrows, uh, it will show you a demonstration of one of the guys that was eventually captured. You know, they filmed this and it was eventually posted. So th that was a uh, that was a close call. I was with uh, four of my colleagues, two locals, and and um, three others that were from from the agency. Two were techs, and only the other one was an operations officer. And all of a sudden, when we came out of a, our our dinner. There were these three guys huddled, talking, and as soon as we walked out, they made eye contact with us, got three abreast, and started walking in front of us. The two guys on the outside had their hands in their left pocket, and the guy in the middle was boring like a drill into my eyes. He was looking straight at me, or so I thought. It was in my direction, because one of the things that happens when you get the adrenaline jolt, and this, this is what we call the oh poop moment. Uh, one thing is to be going hot into combat. You know you're in combat. The other is to be surprised by something that threatening. So I drew my weapon. I drew my handgun. And, you know, if, if, if I point the gun at somebody, you expect some kind of reaction. You know, your arms go up or you go, oh, my God, or, hey, what are you doing? Or not. Mm -hmm. These guys did not even flinch. They kept eye contact. They kept walking three abreast. And they had that look with the, they were saying, don't worry, we'll get you next time. So uh, once I, you know, reholster, I looked to my right and, and my buddy uh, Davis was also reholstering his pistol and trying to light a cigarette. But with the adrenaline, he couldn't. He wasn't afraid. This guy's a Vietnam vet, decorated Vietnam vet. But the rest of the guys never even saw it happen. Wow. They were not aware at all that this incident happened. And of course they got badly chewed up uh, afterwards um, for, for not being attentive. But uh, the lesson you're talking about lessons learned, the lesson learned there was awareness beats fast draw every single time. If I would have tried to react to the first gunshot, I wouldn't be here right now. Certainly sends shivers down my spine. Sure, reliving it does for yourself as well. It's uh, the fact that it was a successful deterrence makes a difference there. Obviously, like I said, if, if we had not been, and I was very proud of the fact that my my companion there, my colleague, uh, who was, like I said, a, a combat veteran, saw the same thing, drew his own weapon, and he couldn't see. The, one of the things that happens under, under that kind of stress is you get tunnel vision. 
And the second thing that you get is auditory exclusion. You can't, you don't hear anything. You can fire a gun at a shooting range uh, without ear protection and it's gonna hurt like hell. Well, when you do it in, in real in real life under stress, you don't hear the gunshots. You, you, uh, you, you do the damage to your hearing but uh, all that is ob obstructed by, by the adrenaline uh, jolt. For us, if, if we would have had to react to the attack, as we see the guys even starting to draw the weapon, uh, at least a couple of us, if not all, would have been assassinated. Wow. So drawing on all of this experience that you have under your belt and looking at today's events of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how is... The Putin regime that we're dealing with today different from the Soviet regime that you spent so much time combating? Yeah, I fought communism in five different incarnations throughout my career. And um, I would tell you that there is no difference. And one of the things that surprised me is that we were surprised that Putin did this. The first thing that he said when he took over power was, I am going to reconstitute the Soviet Union to its greatness. And he said that, echoed that time and time again. He already had done it to Georgia and, and a couple of other places that he had expanded. Before him, there was, there was Afghanistan, another adventure that people don't correlate with, with uh, Ukraine. Uh, so the monster is the same. The, the, the socialism that, 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 that some people are toying with is nothing more than a mask that communism wears in order to let, lure you in and they feed on freedom. So to me, there is, there is absolutely no difference. And anybody who studies history, you know, from Stalin to Khrushchev to Putin, he's, he's, he's not the anomaly, they're not the anomaly, they're the rule. There was a couple of anomalies where, you know, where we're, they were actually trying to negotiate and avoid, but the mentality and, and the ruthlessness and the incredible savagery that they can inflict on people, uh, that's, that's communism, period. Well, thank you for those insights. So current events, very, very depressing, very, very sad. But any advice for folks that may be toying with the intelligence field or their dream is to your career is something that they just find fascinating and any advice for those folks? Well, I think the first advice would be um, read Black Ops because you will see uh, you will see what real CIA operations look like, and you will see real American patriots that are moral, that are de dedicated, that that sacrifice uh, for for the for for God and country. And you know, when I say sacrifice, we're a very small organization. The agency is a small unit compared to even FBI. Definitely not Army, Navy, or Air Force. And we have 137 stars on our wall of honor. A third of those 137 stars are post 9-11. And several of those I knew personally. So, you know, if, uh, if, if, you, if you look at what the agency does and sees what real operations look like, it should lure the right kind of person with the intellect, the, the fortitude, the conviction and the belief to a wonderful career. Now, there, there are some things that they, 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 they should do besides the book, which is prepare themselves to be competitive. There's a couple of things that are very important in the agency. First, you have to have at least a four-year degree if you're gonna be an operations officer. I think if you're gonna be an analyst, you might even need a master's degree. And, and by the way, we, we work you know, hand in hand with, with our analysts. Uh, they're 
they're the, our most precious resource. So the four-year degree minimum uh, is important. If, uh, if somebody was to ask me what topic, I would say anything that, that teaches you about the intercultural conflicts that we have in our world, religion, geopolitics, geography, all that kind of stuff, and learn to write really well because we are very strict on, on writing uh, capabilities. The second thing that I would encourage anybody uh, is to serve in the military, at least for, for a four-year period. Um, the military affords you clearances, it affords you training, and, and, and it separates you from just that college kid that you cannot be hired at 24 at the agency anyway. They don't hire that, that, that young. Well, they usually want you to have some personal growth experience uh, in whether it's business or science or whatever, or the military. The third thing that I highly would encourage anybody that wants to get into our business is to learn a second language. CIA will not allow their officers to go operational unless they have operational level capability in the language that is spoken in the country they're going. And that's a three level, that's the minimum. Training goes anywhere from six months to two years of, of full immersion. So th those three items, you know, the, the educational, the preparing yourself, if you don't want to do the military, well, getting a, a job overseas in whatever your major was and, and learning a language while you're doing that and getting that worldly exposure. Those are all the things that, that, um, that the agency is looking for as high points. Great advice. And some of those I actually haven't heard before. So I'm sure that someone in the audience is appreciating that. You spoke to the case officer that you looked up to. Any other mentors, any notable mentors throughout your career? Well, I mean, from, from the very beginning, I was blessed. Uh, with the, the first one was Colonel Ray. He was the, the, the base chief for the Contra program when it first started in, uh, in 81. Uh, bigger than life physically and, 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 uh, and uh, reputation-wise. Uh, he jumped into Corregidor during World War II as a 17-year-old. As a uh, was a Green Beret, um, was our guy in the, in the Laotian camps during the Vietnam War. And he was one of the best bosses I ever had. He was the one that really politicked for me to be professionalized into the operational side, not just the paramilitary side. Another uh, person that I have to mention was uh, Dewey Claridge. Dewey Claridge, a legendary CIA officer, very senior. He took a liking for, uh, to me because he was Bill Casey's, uh, our, then our director in the early 80s. Uh, he was his right-hand man. He was his pit bull. And he saw what I was doing and how I was living in the camps. He saw the photographs that I would bring out. And he saw the results of our operational pace that we had down there. And he had always, uh, he, he was a mentor way after the agency. We, we, we worked together in post agency on several sensitive programs in, su in support of the, uh, the U.S. special military. And it goes on, Kofor Black uh, being in, in, uh, in CTC, our counter-terrorist center where 9-11 happened. Kofor had recruited me out of East Asia Division. This is when I, I was chief of the Koreas for four years. Two years working in Korea and then two years as running the whole Korea's program out of headquarters. That's where I got my senior grade uh, out of headquarters, 1998. So he recruited me out of that to go in and, and he said, look, you know, I need you here for a year to uh, help Hank Crumpton, who's a, another dear friend. And he says, and when Hank leaves in a year, I want you to move up to be my chief of operations. And, you know, okay, I will, I will tell you, Kofor was the quintessential person to have leading CTC at the time of 9-11. I, I cannot think of another officer 
um, that that was more that was a perfect fit. Then he took it on board as this is my mission. I am going to fight this this war. And and as you know, the agency played the, 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 a very major role, especially at the beginning, in the whole neutralize the Taliban and, and go after Al Qaeda. Kofor was followed by Jose Rodriguez, who had been a friend of mine for years. Anyway, uh, we used to ride. We still do. We ride motorcycles together. And Jose was another legendary uh, agency officer who followed Kofor. So, you know, I was blessed with really good bosses and, and some of them, including in pararescue, um, I, I, would, I would be remiss to, to, to not to mention that there was a guy by the name of Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Fisk, and you can Google him. He is, uh, you know, did four tours in Vietnam, uh, Sante Raid, the Mayaguez, and he's got silver stars and, and, and everything else. He saw something in me as a 21-year-old in pararescue that I didn't see in myself for years. And the same, same can be said about, you know, you know, uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Ray and, and, and some of the Andui Claridge, people that encouraged me based on what their opinion of me was. And that was extremely motivating because how can you let somebody like that down? Somebody who puts that much faith in you, so. Well, Kofor Black, former director of the CIA Counterterrorist Center, says that you are a legendary CIA operations officer. So I really appreciate you joining me today for this episode of Cleared Cast. Everyone can get Black Ops, the life of a CIA shadow warrior. It was a New York Times bestseller, so I encourage everyone to read it. For more news on current events, like what's happening in Ukraine, and for more news on espionage and other intelligence career advice, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. 